Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Old Everald and Young James Talk Politics. Last week, Everald and I previewed the uh, Johnson Skills Summit held by the Albanese government uh, this past week. Um, now it's been and gone. Uh, 36 recommendations on the table, and here's uh, myself and Everald to pass through them. What's good? What's bad? How are you, Ed? Well, I'm fine, mate. I'm fine. It's good to talk with you and... Uh... And I think there's some key issues we can discuss in this job as a summit. I approached it with uh, some, you know, feeling it's going to be a big affair. I, I could have gone had I pushed the issue, uh, you know, representing oldies, but uh, jobs and skills aren't my great areas of expertise. I'm more into infrastructure and looking after old guys, but... but uh, uh, I, uh, one of my reluctant points to go uh, was that I went to the 2000, in 2008, I think it was, when Kevin Rudd uh, held the 2020 summit, where we, 200 or three or more, we gathered, no, it might have been 500, gathered in Canberra to plan what we wanted Australia to be like in 2020. And that was, it was a great time. I was in Tim Fisher's section on rural Australia, where we planned the future. Got some great things there about 10 different ranches, I think. And everybody left the summit on a high. There was great recommendations. And only one of them was implemented, and that was the one that Ruddy himself put up about trying to manufacture a bionic uh, ear in Australia. And and, uh, and so I saw one of what an absolute shit. I'm never going another one again. Now, this one was run differently, a smaller group of people. And it had a specific agenda where there's the one for 2020, we could talk about anything in Australia. And this one was about jobs and skills that was focused. And I think the quality of delegate was good. I looked down the list and they'd done a good job of getting people from left and right and all sorts of uh, different aspects of, uh, of Australian, uh, Australian life. And they appeared to do a lot of homework beforehand. And as you say, they wound up with 36 uh, recommendations that, uh, that, that now have to be put into play. But it seemed to me that there was a unanimity of purpose there that we haven't seen for nine years. Now, uh, I'm not going to mention LNP and ALP, but Abbott and Turnbull and Morrison presided for nine years over Australia by dividing society constantly by putting fear in our hearts and denigrating everybody else in sight. Probably one of the worst nine political years of, of my life. Now, all of a sudden yesterday, we had a whole pile of people in there agreeing. And we even had David Littleproud, the leader of the Naps, get his picture taken with Albo, both smiling, and, 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 and him saying that he thought some great stuff came out for reason of change. I nearly fell off my chair, you know, in, in, in the whole thing. So there was a, a unanimity of purpose. Uh, uh, by the way, I praise a little proud for that because he probably would have got a hiding from Dutton when he got home. But, you know, the, I, I thought there was a unity of purpose there that Australia hasn't had for a decade. Now, what was your view? No, I agree with you there. Like, I, I don't think too particularly highly a little proud, but, like, I think Barnaby would have probably done a Peter Dutton and, you know, threw his toys in the cotton, yeah, not yeah. attended. So, like, credit to Little Proud for going. And I think it's a, a good 
first, like Albanese's built himself as this consensus builder sort of guy. Um, not that he'll try to reach across the aisle and work with bad faith actors, but that he's willing to, um, just like Bob Hawke did in the 80s, bring businesses and unions together uh, to look for uh, ways to solve the problem. Because we, even though we have a low unemployment rate right now, it's masking a lot of other problems in the economy, um, structural problems, over-casualised workforces, um, the fact that we're going to talk about this later, people on certain types of welfare, if they try to go back to work, uh, their welfare payments get immediately sucked out, even if they're not earning enough at work uh, to keep their heads above water. Um, problems like that, um, which generally are silent problems because you may not know about them unless you've been personally affected by them, um, such as the welfare problem or the problems we have with the enterprise bargaining system right now, um, which were also addressed at the summit. Um, problems relating to, you know, uh, inclusion in the workforce of women and diverse Australians was another name of the summit. Um, pay equity and opportunity equity, um, which was good to see. And I know Katie Gallagher led from the forefront of that, um, Labor's leader in the, in the upper house and finance minister. Um, so there were some really good and promising things. And all around, it seemed like even groups that you don't traditionally think are associated with the Labor Party, like the Business Council of Australia, uh, who have done things across, you know, as long as we've both been alive to undermine the Labor Party and the Labor movement, uh, came to the party and the table in good faith. Well, that was absolutely extraordinary because Jennifer Westacott, who runs the Business Council, is that far to the right you can't see her. And there she was with Sally McManus uh, uh, from the uh, ACTU, agreeing on purpose. And I'm looking at this and saying, look, I've got to check my whiskey bottles to make sure I'm not drinking too much. But, you know, Westacott was there with the unions pragmatically saying, if we, both, if we all want to make a dollar, we better get together. We better cut out the eggs. We better, now, let's see what we can agree upon. And, and, and I think that was, a, that was an extraordinary business. Look, I, uh, I stopped subscribing to the Australian Financial Review, which I've read for most of my business life, because I th thought, thought, and I still do think, it's an extreme right-wing newspaper with some terrible right-wing journalists. Now, they put a whole page in about the opening speech that was made by Danielle Woods, who's the CEO of the Grattan Institute, the think tank, who uh, uh, was asked to make the opening speech after Albo and, and, and Jim Chalmers welcomed everyone. And she's an economist. And she gave an analysis of the Australian economy, which the Financial Review printed the main headline. And it was an extraordinary speech. And the AFR you know, which normally would bag someone saying the sort of thing she did. She actually said that she was the star turn of the show and she was going to be a power in Australian economic policy. And I've read it last night, I sat down and read it, and it was an enormous speech about how the power of a nation is in the quality and movability of the workforce, the amount of money they're paid, the way they innovate. And, and, and she made it a tremendous speech about the power of the economy is not in how much mining we do and what dividend is Carl's mine going to pay or what all it's the quality, the mobility, the skills, the standard of living, the vision of the people who work 
in the economy. Extraordinary space. Did you happen to run across it? Well, um, one thing that you touched on there and that was touched in our speech was, um, like you said, the quality and the, the innovation is what I want to focus on. Because the, the line from sort of traditional economists is that like, um, when like wages can grow as fast as productivity is growing without causing inflation. So if wages are growing by 20% year on year, which they never would, but productivity was growing 25% year on year, that wouldn't actually cause inflation um, because any increase the worker is getting in their pay packet is being matched by an increase in what they're putting into the workforce. Yeah. Now, in this country, uh, for 22 years, um, workers have been getting screwed in that their productivity has been going up and up and up and wages have not been increasing to match that, um, which means that like the these two lines on the graph, which are meant to be married together, um, are divorced, significantly divorced. <laughs> and the, uh, the wage line is almost run flat. Now, what this means is, of course, um, the workers have a lot to claw back. <laughs> and in terms of innovation, um, workers have been innovating so much for 22 years and not being rewarded for it. Um, and so I think one of the big focuses of this summit, if wages are to be increased, is, um, and again, this is addressed, things like looking to address enterprise bargaining to make it fairer for workers will hopefully go towards worker innovation being rewarded. Because after 22 years of innovating and mobility and putting in everything to the workforce, um, you know, I've obviously only worked for like three years or something, well, for like, for, you know, worked seriously for like three, four years, um, but five, actually five. But for someone who's been working that entire period, I can't imagine how it would feel to have, you know, pretty well stagnant wages while being forced to like adapt to the digital age and push yourself to new heights and all that. Um, you, you, you wouldn't feel ripped off. So I'm absolutely behind any measure that looks to getting that wages growth line back up to where productivity growth is because oh, workers deserve it. I agree. And I believe that summit with the unions cooperating with the business council, yeah. they're, they're, they're moving in the one direction, which has that. Now, two things that uh, highlighted themselves uh, that uh, I'd like to talk. One is women in in, in, in the workforce, and, and as Danielle Woods in her speech said, you know, uh, you know we, we, we've got to have the mothers of Australia in the workforce. Now, not, not five days a week. They might only come one day a week, two days a week. Whatever. So everything's got to be done to get every mother in Australia in the workforce who's able to do so, who's physically able or, you know, whatever. And so there was a great thrust to get women back in the workforce, which means child care is going to have greater money or that needs greater skill as well, but uh, that's all part of the skill thing, but getting mothers back in the workforce was the bigger, and the other one is getting oldies back into the workforce. And to me, they were two significant uh, things. Now, we leave the oldies to the last minute, but all throughout her speech, she kept talking about getting mothers back into the workforce, all sorts of benefits in that, not just that, <clears throat> not just that, the way the extra wages are bring home, but it enables them to release their their vision and their skills and whatever in a way they've never done before. And as a result of that, you've got a better society. Now, what do you think of the mothers back in the workforce? Well, 
At, right at the start, I talked about how a lot of these structural problems in the workforce may only really be evident if you've experienced it. Mm. And if you haven't experienced it, you may not know. And I think the problem faced by women, especially mothers in the workforce, is one of those problems that you can easily ignore if you're a man and you've never had to go through it. Because the way society is structured now, where we still place most of the expectation of raising a kid on the mothers, you essentially take away two years of career progression from women. Um, you stall their career for two and, years. And break their superannuation, taking yep. them out. Exactly. Now, we need, um, and we should have moved to this, you know, 50 years ago, but obviously you know, it should have always been like this. Um, we, we need to focus and change societal attitudes to make it so parents, um, male and female, you know, if, uh, same-sex couples, male and male or female and female, that we have an even parenting load. That way both parents, if they want to, can still advance their careers. Because as it stands now, it's hugely unfair that the burden is always cast on the women to leave the workforce um, for potentially two years, three years even, um, if not more, and raise the kid. Um, skills are whittled away. Um, employability is whittled away. Um, now, obviously, this isn't to say we should be, you know, make forcing mothers to take time away from the kids. Um, it's just a matter of we should have the option open if mothers want to, um, to be able to be mothers and be um, employed workers at the same time. Because don't get me wrong, rearing, uh, raising a kid is a heck of a lot of work, you know. It's probably harder work, more difficult work than um, working as a lawyer and oh, officer, right. let me tell you that. Absolutely. Um, but, and and, and yeah. men have been absent in many ways. In Exactly. Somebody got up at the summit in one of the signs saying, well, at the moment we're saying Afghanistan, in Afghanistan, the economy of Afghanistan is wrecked and it's because the Taliban can shoot guns, but they couldn't do anything else. But somebody got up and said the reason why Afghanistan has had a crooked economy for decades, if not centuries, is that the women of Afghanistan are locked up permanently without education, without any rights. And how can you have a prosperous nation with half the population locked up? And, and they use Afghanistan as an example of what happens when mothers aren't in the workforce. Very pertinent comment, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, um, if we can mobilise the mothers, um, and so many mothers would be willing to do it, um, and to be fair, it's less a case of mobilising the mothers and more a case of getting the men to get off their ass and help around at home. Let's be real. Like that, that, that's, that's the societal shift we have to make. We have to make it so men want to and can, without facing mockery, be stay-at-home dads. Um, and it's probably a bit of a, not, not a slap in the face, but kind of um, a bit ironic and silly that, to this women in the workforce problem has to be looked at through the eyes of how can we get men to do their fair share? Um, but like that, that's what it is because we have to get the men of Australia, um, you know, out of their cushy offices and doing child responsibilities at home. I remember we had like a Women's Day talk last year at my work and one of the, the partners in the office who's a guy talked about being a stay-at-home dad and how in doing so he allowed his partner to, um, you know, stay in the workforce because she wanted to keep working and it's it's high time we 
balance the responsibilities at home because um, it, it's so unfair expecting mothers do all the work at home, which is incredibly tough work, incredibly important work and the work that keeps society ticking um, and letting men off the hook for doing it. So Yeah, true. Interesting time. Now, moving on to Aldi, a bit of controversy about this. There's a lot of pensioners and self-funded retirees with low capital base in their superannuation who want to get back into the workforce. Now, traditionally, you retired at 65, but everybody said you worked hard all your life. You're now entitled to rest. Well, medical science has now proved that anyone who retires and rests will live five years shorter, unless you have cancer coming out of left field or something. They live five years shorter than somebody who keeps working even part-time. And so this idea that you've got to rest, you've earned your rest is a one-way direction, you know, to the grave. And, and, and then there were people who thought, well, oldies, they're, they're out of touch. They're, they're not up to date with all the latest technologies they ship out in the world. But now pensioners are finding with the inflation and the high cost of living, which one hopes is not going to go on forever, that their pension is not good enough no matter what. And they need to supplement their income. But in addition, they'd like to stimulate the old brain and get there. But if you went and worked for more than a few hours a week here and there, you lost part of your pension. Now, out of this summit, I think they've given a $4,000 credit on your pension thing that you can get wages up to $4,000 for the year without losing uh, your, your pension. And, and uh, this, in my view, is a, a significant uh, step forward. Now, with self-funded retirees, with no cabinet, and they didn't handle this one at the summit, they should be allowed to take their wages in full straight into their super fund, where it is a lot of things, to build up their capital base to keep them off the pension. And they've got the same economic problems as pensioners. They haven't got enough money to live. And I thought this was tremendous. Now, the people running around talking about exploiting oldies and how we're having old grannies with rheumatism being forced into the workforce and all this crap. That's not what it's all about. Not all oldies are going to take this up. But it's an incredible opportunity. Now, now one day, James, he'll be an old man. I can see you living to at least a hundred. How do you, how do you see this? Yeah. So there's this economist on Twitter, um, David Sligar, S-L-I-G-A-R, um, and he talks a lot about well the welfare systems in Australia, and how with the means testing we have where welfare recipients, if they go back into the workforce and start work, get their welfare taken away, taken away. Um, it turns out that essentially welfare recipients are some of the most taxed people in this country, which is really stupid and unfair and acts as a huge disincentive um, from welfare recipients going back into the workforce because every dollar they make at work, um, they pretty much lose 50 cents of welfare payment. So for every dollar you earn, you're only getting 50 cents of that. Now, if you are in the highest tax bracket in Australia, you get to keep 51 cents on the dollar that you earn. So you've got welfare recipients being taxed at a higher rate than Clive Palmer's getting taxed, essentially, which is ridiculous, stupid. Um, and what Sligar advocates for is basically universal welfare um, without means testing and a better tax system. So you'd have all, uh, say, over 65s or over 70s or over 75s getting the pension. 
that you'd have a more robust tax system. So those Clive Palmers at the top and that essentially have it taxed away. Whereas your average Joe Smiths who maybe want to work one or two days a week um, to top up their pension aren't as sort of viciously taxed as they are now. And I think that's probably the better system too, because it, it gets rid of a lot of like the bureaucratic costs of it too. Like this stuff about welfare recipients doing a bit of work, um, say casual work or two day a week work and having huge bits of their welfare stripped away is what caused robo death. Um, you know, which saw two people tragically lose their lives. Yeah. And it's and something that ha yeah. Yeah. happens to me. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, former, former persecution, and what I yeah. find out is that the, the, the tax cuts for the wealthy, Alba wants to adhere to a promise he made in an election, and it's good to hear politicians want to keep a promise, but that is pure welfare. That tax cut for the wealthy is a pure welfare handout uh, and for which they will then you know make a lot of money but it is the greatest piece of welfare in australia that tax cut and, and that's something to have around but then, moving on uh, overall to the summit i thought that uh, uh that there, it, it proved also people were saying beforehand that trade unions were going to take over the summit and the trade union agenda would be uh, predominant and what have you now uh, the trade union people were well and truly outnumbered there, but the facts of the matter were that the trade unions didn't try to dominate. In fact, nobody let them dominate it. The fact is they knew that unless they dealt with the business council and vice versa, Australia was going nowhere. And, and, and so it, it, the issue, the thought that this was a trade union plot turned out to be you know, uh, you know, absolutely do. But let me move on to a, uh, to another matter, Jane. Peter Dutton didn't turn up. Now, little Brad did, and there's a bit of a rift, I understand, between the Nats and uh, and the Liberals over all sorts of things, which might bust up the coalition at some some point. I, in fact, I have a doubt. But Dutton didn't turn up because he reckoned it was a talk fest for the unions and whatever. And it was one of the most stupid political decision I've ever seen in my life that not turning up. If I'd been him, he's only got great 17% in the polls and the leadership stake, so he's got to go up somewhere. I would have said, right, look, this is a bloody plot by Albanese, I know it is, but there are a couple of hundred very influential Australians there. In fact, the, the most influential mob you could get in a room at one time here in Australia. I'll go along. And I'll work the crowd at the coffee breaks and the lunch breaks and the drinks. I'll walk around and say, look, if you follow Alba, you're off your head down. This is, this is what I'll do when I'm going to be the prime minister. He could have got around working the crowd. He said he stayed away. And so the leaders of the nation look around and say, the alternative prime minister is not even here. And, and I thought it was an act of gross stupidity. Now, am I being too hard on this guy? No, I mean, you're absolutely right. What, what the most sort of weird part of it all is like unions made up about 25% of people who are there. Now, let's remember unions represent workers who are about 99% of the population. Most people aren't bosses. Most people are workers. So really the unions were grossly underrepresented, if anything. But think of who was there. Like Alan Joyce was there. Twiggy Forrest was there. All the bosses and barons of industry and that were there. And they're traditionally in the Liberal Party camp. Mm. Um, so it's absolutely bizarre that 
to my mind, that Dutton would eschew this opportunity to rub shoulders, check in with the people who are traditionally, you know, the interest groups and that, that lobby for his team. And instead he dismissed the whole thing as a big union plot. Um, the other initiative out of the job summit I'd like to quickly touch on is 35,000 more permanent migration uh, visas. Yeah, a good step forward. Another cool thing, I mean, you know, um, just, just at its core, uh, we're a massive country with a lot of land. Um, if we were to stop doing this stupid urban sprawl and build up rather than build out, which we should be doing, um, we've got plenty of space, um, plenty of space to welcome plenty of new people to this country who bring skills, who bring culture, who bring diversity, who bring opportunity, who bring experiences. Um, and, you know, one of the problems we had structurally under the old government was that the economy was kept sort of chugging by people on temporary migration visas um, who were sort of regularly being churned through short stays, kicked out, and borders shut for COVID, sent them all home. Um, whereas in permanent migration visas, obviously these people stay, they can set up lives here, they can set up opportunities here. Um, so more doors opening, which is good. Yeah, well, now that brings a point. I, I read a book a couple of years ago written by George Megalogenis, I think I got his name pronounced right. He's a famous journalist here in Australia. He wrote a book on migration in Australia and he pinpointed at least a dozen instances in Australian history when there was a great migration to Australia where people said, these guys are going to come and pitch out jobs, things are awful. And, in, and that was areas like, like you know, the, the, the gold rush, the time when people were coming out from England because they get a bit of land and have a farm which they could never have in England. And there were times of migration after wars were over, people surged out. And there were about 12 different times when there was a significant rise in migration to Australia. And he shows all the economic figures to show that every time a migrant arrived, the economy was boosted for a whole range of reasons. And never in the history of Australia, even in the gold rush, when they were pouring through you know, Melbourne like flies, the Australian economy uh, uh, prospered, even though most of them didn't find any gold. And so, uh, the whole issue of saying, well, we've got to protect Australian jobs and all that's absolute nonsense. Times of good migration uh, have been proven to be times of great prosperity. Yep, it, it's just racism by other means. This, you know, they come and steal our jobs, they, this mysterious other. Yeah. On the topic of um, racism by other means, onto, my, um, onto our good guys and bad guys of the week, because I think we've wrapped up our summit yeah. pretty well. Uh, my good guy of the week is someone who sadly passed away this week, Mikhail Gorbachev. And he became, after his time as the leader of the Soviet Union, probably the biggest advocate for peace, um, free love, acceptance, and growing as a global community um, more than anyone in the world. Um, I've read a book he wrote at the start of the pandemic recently called What Is at Stake Now?, where he outlines his case for the need to move forward as a united global world um, for all the challenges we face today. And I just can't think of anyone else in the, like in the world right now who's been more of an advocate um, against war, uh, against conflict, against all you know, the, the ills of the world. Um, someone who really ought to be listened to by every world leader right now. 
Um, and it's, you know, he passed away at the ripe old age of 91. So he was a bit ahead of you, Ev. Uh, must have been yeah. a 19, 19 yeah, baby. Yep. Yeah, I, I agree. And Gorbachev was being candid when he brought in uh, the changes to change the, the economy to start, you know, the revolution from which Russia is now prospering in, in, in various ways, even though they're stupidly involved in a war. Uh, he, people say, no, he wrecked the Soviet economy. That's not just when he assumed power, when he got there, the, the economy was already wrecked by the communist regime. He, he inherited a rotten economy. All he tried to do was change it. So he's maligned by all sorts of people. I, I think he was a great man, and you're quite right about peace. And he's been treated awfully by the Russians, uh, particularly by Putin, who had him on a miserable pension. And, and uh, you know, he, uh, I, I think he's one of the degrees, one of the great men of history. So you and I, uh, you know, are agreeing on that. And and, uh, and uh, in my lifetime, I think there were two people who changed the world significantly, and, and uh, there was Gorbachev and there was Nelson Mandela, and the two of them, you know, I think, made, made an enormous impact on the world. Well, who, who was your bad uh, guy of the week? No, my bad guy of the week, and um, he is... Big tough James naming a bunch of fourteen-year-old uh, school kids as his bad guy of the week. Um, a bunch of kids from Knox Grammar, one of the most elite schools in Sydney. Um, someone in a big online group chat um, blew the whistle on them this week for um, sharing some pretty gross child sex material in their group chats. Um, yeah. Really weird, disgusting, exploitative material. Um, this being one of Sydney's elite private schools. Um, like, you know, $30,000 a year tutoring or whatever. And there's a lot of great interest in this story. Um, I don't know if you know, but the Sydney Morning Herald um, loves writing about dynamics of Sydney's elite schools. Um, so there's a big, big sort of frenzy of interest in this story. Obviously, in the, the circles I mingle in at Sydney Uni, there are a lot of Knox Grammar students or people who know Knox Grammar students. So there's a lot of interest there as well. Um, being from a uh, public school myself. I also like to see um, terrible things happen at private schools because it means I can say, you know, win for the public system. Um, but the, the um, it's just shone the light again on the really weird and gross culture you see at private schools. Now, there were some other things happening in these group chats as well. There were like sort of sexist jokes, racist jokes, homophobic jokes. And though those should never be tolerated, um, when it's 14-year-old kids doing it, you can probably put it down to, you know, them being edgy and stupid and not realising how hurtful those things are rather than any malice. But some of the um, material that, according to news.com.au, um, was being shown in these group chats, um, yeah, like gross, exploitative child sex materials and that. And I have no idea how these kids came into possession of that. It's just sickening. It is incredible. I read it, it went way beyond that. Sydney Morning Herald in Dorla. Like you, I went to a state school all my life. I don't regret that. I'm glad I didn't go to a posh public school because I've seen so many people walking around the plum in their mouth because they went to a posh public school. And, and so I'm not a fan of, although I sent my, I, I paid for my four children to go to good schools. And we picked good schools to send them to, not the upper elite like, uh, Knox, but a good solid 
church schools they went to and where, where we chose the principals and whatever. And then I'm grateful my children have. But I'm delighted I never went near the place. And I think that it does not surprise me mm. how the elite, when they get together, denigrate everybody else in sight. And, and uh, you know, I think you've hit on a thing that's uh, really quite disgusting. Look, my, my, my band, really, at the same time as the summit's on, some Christians, the Christian right, put on a summit in Sydney, and I've just printed off from uh, one of the newspapers a 21, from Crikey actually, a 21 page report on how these guys got a summit in opposition to the one Alba was running, where the theme was forget all about that crap about wages and growth and skills and whatever. If you follow the Lord, you're going to get wealthy. And so I'm going to read this 21. But they got together in fervent prayer. You know, they, 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 if everybody in Australia comes to the Lord, we're all going to make that much dough. We'll be thrown into the sea. You know? And so I'm about to, and I just turned this, I thought, how stupid can you get? And why would you want to denigrate Jesus of Nazareth, who, in my view, is the greatest socialist of all time? Why would you want to denigrate him with his rubbish? So I'm about to read 21 pages about how if you and I become Christians, James, we'll have money pouring out of our ears. Now, are you willing to take that punch, Dan? <laughs> I mean, we, we must be pretty bad Christians then because we're not sitting on mountains of millions. Uh, that's that. Yeah, that's that weird Scott Morrison prosperity gospel stuff, isn't it? The idea that um, yeah. the pursuit of wealth and the pursuit of material gains on earth is the ultimate end. It's just... Yeah, it's 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 the antithesis of everything that you and I think our faith stands for, isn't it? It's <laughs> it's mind absolutely mind-boggling. I was anyway. They're my bad guys. Well, now look, James. I think we've covered things, uh, yep. uh, you know, pretty well. And I think it'll be interesting to see what happens this week in the aftermath of the uh, of the uh, the summit. And I'd like next Saturday to talk about Almo's persistence in wanting to give this tax cut to the wealthy and what the alternatives might be. We don't knock Albo. I, I admire politicians who stick to what they promise, but I think it's wrong. And I'd like to analyse the role of taxes and tax cuts and whatever, what they do for society and what they don't do. So that's one of the things we can talk about next week. But it'd be good to talk to you this week, James, and you know, I hope you... You uh, you have a good week and you keep out there reforming Sydney University, won't you? Uh, as always, Everald, no rest for the wicked and um, hope the same to you. Have a wonderful week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Um, hopefully there was something in the Job Summit for you guys. The one thing I'll just quickly say, uh, sad again to see nothing done for unemployed workers at the Job Summit. I know there were TAFE positions put up. There was nothing to the job seeker rate, but I think that's something we can talk about next week when we're talking about the issues with these tax cuts for the yeah. top end of town. So thanks right, for listening, that, everyone. That sounds good, James. Well, have a good week. Yep. Bye for now. Thanks, all.